Let's talk about global security concerns today. Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Adrian Davis, a Senior Research Consultant with the Information Security Forum, which is based in the UK. Adrian, thanks so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure. Hi, Tom. Adrian, it'd be interesting for comparison's sake, because here in the U.S., we find organizations are very concerned about fraud these days and cybersecurity. From your station in the UK, what do you find to be the top security concerns that are on your mind now? I know you named off a few before. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the, the big things or, or that comes through this is really the, the threat of crimeware as a service, which takes in fraud. You know, this is where people can buy tailor-made malware to attack a bank or attack even an individual now um, and that malware is, is well written it's well supported some of them offer 24-7 365 telephone support and they're not often caught by most of the um, available anti-malware products we have like the antivirus software or, or firewalls or whatever so that's a big concern over here and obviously fraud is part of that with phishing um, and that leads us nicely on to the next big problem, which, of course, is malware embedded in websites, the sort of click-through uh, problem that we're seeing now. I think one of the other things associated with links uh, and malware is, of course, social networking. There's a big debate about should you allow Facebook, should you block it, should you allow this, should you allow that. At the end of the day, a lot of this is a business decision. If the business wants to use Facebook, we as information security have to carry on and use it, to be honest, and we have to make sure that people use it in a secure manner. Now, there are other things that are, I think are of general concern, things such as application development and secure coding and the rise of the app. You know, you can now get, uh, I think it's tens if not hundreds of thousands of applications for your iPhone or your smartphone and these now these devices are now increasingly being used to interact with corporate systems in fact you can actually i think you can buy sap uh, for mobile and there's a big problem here about data leakage data loss if the device gets stolen and of course they may provide a, a route in for um, hackers or other uh, parties to get into your corporate systems so th i think that a lot of the threats are all sort of bound up with each other these days um, and they apply to both, you know, banks and uh, pharmaceutical houses as well as government and um, states, etc. Because we're all now depending so much more on IP-enabled devices. Well, Adrian, you anticipated my next question, which was what are the biggest threats to public and private organizations? So let me follow up with you and ask... How are you seeing organizations respond to all these different threats from malware to social networking to even just the insider threat, which we certainly have seen in the, the past year or so? I think some organizations are, are coping better than others, uh, and I think that's a general comment uh, globally, not just within the ISF membership. Um, a lot of it boils down to is how security is perceived. If security is there to help business processes run more securely, run better, then I think a lot of the time organizations who have that view are faring better because their, their underlying processes are robust enough to, if you like, 
accept and deal with the risks that you that I've mentioned and you've mentioned as well, Tom. Other organisations where security's job is to stop everything and block everything, I think they're struggling now because the tide is is too great. You cannot you cannot now stop every or in or stop or investigate every email, every packet, every um, message that comes through your your corporate network because the volume is just just far too big, um, and any system that can do any of this is going to slow down the transmission rates which you know these days people need fast access on the move or when they're watching video or taking part in the webcast so I think the responses actually are much more driven by how security is embedded in the organisation and the other thing that really matters is getting the basics right it's amazing to me that people still cannot patch critical systems quickly because very often putting a patch in place is one of the best mechanisms uh, for stopping malware and you know the other big one of course is handling movers joiners levers access management basics need to be done well and then you need to start working on processes well you make a good point there Adrian, I'd like to ask you about some specific areas of concern in the U.S. and get some global perspective from you that might broaden horizons here. Payment security, yeah. for one. We've talked a lot about uh, PCI in the U.S. over in the past year or so. We've talked about the merits of chip and pin and, and tokenization. What can the U.S. learn from the U.K. and other global examples when it comes to payment security? Uh, I think uh, a lot of the PCI DSS um, work it, it has been very useful um, however I think the PCI doesn't necessarily go far enough in some ways in other ways I think it, it uh, goes too far it, it's still trying to I think it has to I think they're still trying to strike a balance um, I use chip and pin I use chip and pin I've used chip and pin for years now in the UK does it work yes is it relatively relatively secure yes of course it can be cracked but it's one of those, it's an extra layer. It just raises the bar and stops um, what you might call easy theft. Uh, it was interesting, when chip and pin first came in, there was actually a rise in other, in other older types of fraud, such as check fraud, as the criminals changed their um, MO uh, until they realized how they could actually deal with chip and pin and, ha and how they could circumvent some of the security. You know, criminals will always, always change their MO. They'll always try and be half a step ahead or half a step behind. But I think chip and pin is a very good thing. I mean, I, I'm amazed when I go to America that I buy something on a credit card and I show the front of my credit card and my signature isn't even checked. You know, that's a, that's, to me, that's the very basic level of security that everybody should be doing. Um, in terms of sort of bigger, bigger payments, I know that the... Um, Treasury is working with a number of um, innovators over in America to look at how they can stop sort of wire fraud and, and check fraud through day time stamping. So I think it's a two-way street. You know, we can learn from some of the American experiences. I, I also hope the Americans can actually learn from some of our experiences. Another topic for you, Adrian, privacy. You know, in the U.S., we've got individual states that are coming up with their own privacy and data security regulations but nothing at a federal level yet what can we learn from your experience in the UK and elsewhere 
Well, I, th I think the first thing is, of course, is, is to get it pronounced right because it's privacy over <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> um, uh, joking aside, this is a big deal because, call it what you will, there is a different set of cultural assumptions here. In Europe, and I'm not, and I'm not so saying, and in the UK at this point, in Europe there is almost a belief that an individual has the right to protect or have their data protected on their behalf by the state and by organizations. And in America, I don't think that is necessarily true. And culturally, I think Americans are much more um, used to sharing information. And in a, in a way, if it, if it then gets used for something else, yes, they get annoyed, but it's not a big problem. So I think there's a big cultural difference here. And I'm not sure that that cultural difference will necessarily go away over the next, let's say, five or ten years. The really big issue at the moment is, of course, the patchwork of, reg of legislation and regulation. There's, as you say, rightly, there's, a, there's all the state bills coming through. But you, look, you go across the border. Canada has a set of privacy regulations and a set of privacy laws that are different from the American ones, that are different from the European Union. Within the European Union and in the UK, our information laws, our data privacy laws, they all differ. They're similar, but they're different. And any organization that has to deal across multiple jurisdictions is going to find itself in a real problem because if you, uh, if you comply with one law and you set everything up to work with that law, you may be breaking another law somewhere else. And Unfortunately, most courts do not recognize the fact that just because you're complying with somebody else's law means you have to break their own law. So your organization gets a bad press or a slapped wrist or a fine. I think for me, the big thing here is we need to sit down and work together on this one. I'm not saying we need a global data privacy standard, but we need to understand what people are trying to achieve and then not necessarily write conflicting laws. And every jurisdiction has laws that conflict, even within itself. And I'm thinking here about some of the UK laws where you can't keep data for longer than you use it, yet you have other things that say you must keep the data for seven years no matter what. So I think the, the thing to learn from, from Europe is please try and have a harmonized approach across America. And the second thing is please make sure you don't directly contradict what, what other people are saying and doing. And when we settle all that, we'll work on the pronunciation issue. Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll, tack, we'll tackle the, the easy things first. <laughs> <laughs> One more for you, Adrian. I know you've got yeah. some expertise in third-party relationships, and that's been a huge concern in the U.S. in the past few years, especially for financial institutions and government agencies and now for healthcare organizations. What are some lessons that, that our organizations here can learn from others globally when it comes to third-party relationships? I think third parties, it, it, is, it is the big coming issue. In, in part, it's being driven by things like the cloud. Um, but overall, everybody, certainly from an information security perspective, globally is struggling because although we have some initiatives, and I know that BITS are active in America, and we have uh, the ISS active now looking at uh, third-party standards, what we don't have is something that everybody can use and trust. 
Because one of the big, one of the key things is, of course, if you're buying a service from a third party, then they're going to naturally tell you they're going to do everything you want, and of course they do it well, but you can't necessarily prove it. And unfortunately, a lot of problems that we've seen recently for organisations have been caused by failures of security in their third parties. Consumers do not blame outsourced organisations. If my bank loses my bank details, sorry, if an outsourcer loses my bank details whilst working for my bank, I don't blame the outsourcer, I blame my bank. So there's a lot of things going on here and what we, what we all need to do is try and see if there are a standard set of guidelines or um, policies or procedures or whatever, whatever you want to call them that we, can, that we can work with the vendor, the outsourcing community who provides with our services so that everybody has a baseline of security that we can check on a regular basis and then if you, let's say you work for a finance house you put on extra um, security or whatever it may be to satisfy the requirements but everybody's building off a strong baseline that they all agree and at the moment we don't have that and that's a real real issue because it's costing us money because we as outsourcers have to go and audit all our third parties and it's costing our third parties money because they have to support our audits and they get audited every day it's not a satisfactory position to be in so we've talked about a number of issues here payment security privacy as you say third-party relationships if you were to advise large organizations today to improve their information security policies globally where would you start in giving them that advice I think my, my first advice is get your own house in order get the basics right and I mean by basics I said it before patching identity and access management it doesn't mean go out and buy big systems this means just make sure you patch make sure you know whether all your dormant accounts really are dormant make sure if people leave you can shut down all their access quickly doesn't necessarily mean you go out and buy a big system but it means you have control over that process and you know what is going on once you've got the basics right and let's face it they're not glamorous they don't earn the big bucks they don't have big boxes that go ping then is the time to start investing in some of the newer technologies. The other piece of advice I give is accept your organization is already in the cloud. It's using Facebook, it's using cloud providers, it's moving its data around and there is nothing you can do to turn that tide back. What you have to do is be, pre be uh, prepared and be able to help your organization use those securely and deliver business benefit from them. So at the end of the day, that's what information and security is here to do, is to help our businesses work better, work more securely, and get better profits. Adrian, very good. I appreciate your time and your insight today. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much. We've been talking about global information security. We've been talking with Adrian Davis with the Information Security Forum. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field.
Thank you very much.